We're in a series called Grace and Truth, and we need these things. Jesus brought grace and truth from the Father to us, and we need grace and truth still today. And we've been talking about a series of controversial subjects, difficult conversations, but hopefully you realize in this series that you can have grace and truth together. And that's what we really want. Today I'm going to talk about critical theory versus Christianity. And I know a lot of people might be like, well, I don't know what critical theory is. You're going to begin to recognize it as I explain it throughout this message. The more I talk about it, the more you're going to say, oh yeah, that explains pretty much all the craziness in the world. Critical theory is a worldview. And a worldview is like having glasses on the edge of your nose. Like everything you see, you see through your worldview. Christianity is a worldview. Critical theory is a worldview. And it shapes the culture all around us. So you hear it coming out of Hollywood, celebrities and what they talk about. It's being taught in colleges. It's shaping the HR policies and sensitivity training at your work most likely. And it seeks to answer the most basic human questions like who are we? What's our fundamental problem? What's the solution to that problem? And how should we live our lives morally? I'll tell you right up front my position. Critical theory promotes wrong identities. It seeks to solve the wrong problems and it offers the wrong solutions. It's deceptive because it uses words like justice and we all want justice. It talks about racism and we hate racism. It talks about helping those who are oppressed, and that's exactly what Jesus came to do, set the captive free. The problem is that critical theory has its own set of definitions, and it offers very different solutions than the Bible. It uses words like oppression and equity and justice, but it doesn't mean what you think it means. Critical theory and its subcomponents are incompatible with Christianity, and they ultimately lead people away from the Christian faith by attacking our core doctrines, the church as an organization, and even the concept of absolute truth itself. I think a lot of Christians have been infected by critical theory ideology and oftentimes don't even realize it. So it's so important that instead of letting an ideology shape our worldview and recreating the Christian faith in our own image, We've got to let scripture be our foundation and shape our worldview and determine how we face this world. John Mark Homer said, ideology is the idolatry of our day. People get attached to a certain way of thinking, a certain way of seeing the world. And sometimes they're not willing to let God mess with their ideologies. We've got to watch out for that. We live today in a world that needs the truth. Every effective deception has elements of truth sprinkled in. Otherwise, nobody would fall for it. And critical theory has elements of truth sprinkled in. It rightly describes the fact that there are injustices in the world, and there are. The Bible talks about this going back in Genesis 3. It talks about the fall of man, how God created the world good. There was no sin or death in the world, but Adam and Eve, they broke God's laws, and that brought the curse of sin into the world. God cursed the serpent and all of his creation. He cursed humanity by introducing pain into childbirth. He cursed the system of living, how Adam would struggle and toil to eke out a living from the earth. And you might wonder like, well, why would God curse his own creation? He did it because that was justice for sin. That's the truth. 
But then God, because he's so merciful, he turns right around in the next breath and he makes a plan to redeem us from the curse by his grace through faith in Jesus. That's God's grace. He's good like that. And Jesus is ultimately going to end all injustice and stop all suffering and right every wrong. The Bible talks about this in Revelation 21.4. It says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. How good does that sound? It's coming. But we still live in a world with pain and oppression and injustice and racism and broken systems. Jesus came to right the wrongs of the world. And although Christians do sometimes get it wrong individually, we can see when we look back historically how the Christian movement has been healing systemic injustice throughout history. Going to children, talk about children. They were systemically oppressed and abused throughout most of human history and treated as property and of lower worth than adults. The concept of loving and cherishing children came from Christianity. Going back to Jesus saying, let the little children come to me. And first and second century Christians taking care of abandoned children. In the Roman society, you could abandon children on the trash heap if you didn't want them. We've come a long way from then. Now we have helicopter moms everywhere. It's like totally different. <laughs> the greatest anti-slavery movements in history came from Christians, like William Wilberforce, a devout Christian who fought to abolish slavery in England or in America. Before Abraham Lincoln or the North fought to end slavery in the South, Christians were leading the abolitionist movement and they were appealing to their fellow citizens. They were saying, hey, all mankind is created in God's image and bears the image of God. They we all have value as image bearers of God. Slavery is morally wrong in God's eyes. Amen. Women's rights came out of Christianity. The, the risen Jesus. He first appeared to women. He did that on purpose. How many of you know that Jesus wasn't going to do anything on Resurrection Sunday by accident? You're like, oh, yeah, we'll just see who shows up first, who I run into. No, he appeared to women first to validate the important role of women in the church. And the New Testament epistles formalize the leadership opportunities for women in God's church. We're helping the poor. Nobody has done more to help the poor and feed the hungry than Christians. Because Jesus said, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. Or even I think about tolerance for sinners. In Muslim countries, they kill people who practice homosexuality. But Jesus gives us a different example of showing compassion and, and tolerance to sinners. Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Jesus shows us a different way. So justice through Jesus is happening now. But it has not fully happened yet. Does that make sense? It's happening, but it hasn't fully happened yet. It started with Jesus, but the work is still in process. And you got to ask, well, okay, but why is God taking so long then? There's injustice in the world. There's inequality. There's racism. There's oppression. Why is God allowing these things to exist when he's God and he has the power to stop these things? 
Good question. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promises, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Okay, so you might be asking, like, well, what, God, God, what's taking you so long? You know, God, do your thing. Like, wave your finger and, and stop injustice. I can just imagine Jesus up in heaven right now. He's on the throne. He's doing his Jesus thing, and he's looking down at earth. And, you know, he sees there's people worshiping him. He's like, that's great. And then he also sees there's injustice, and there's pain, and there's suffering, and there's people crying out to God to end it. Why is God holding back? What is he waiting for? This passage tells us he's waiting for you. He's been waiting for you. God has been patient. He's been waiting to send Jesus back and end injustice. What was he waiting for? He was waiting for you to be born, to accept Jesus, and receive eternal life because you were chosen. And there is going to come a day when the predetermined list of elect saints are going to all be saved and accept Jesus. God the Father knows the time and he's going to say, let's go. Let's do it. Let's end this. Let's establish a better kingdom. And Revelation 11 talks about it. It says, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices shouting in heaven. The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. In other words, Jesus is back and nothing's ever going to look the same. It's going to be better than you've ever imagined or hoped for. The kingdom of God has come to earth. One day, all of the wrongs of our world will be righted. Evildoers will be punished. And Jesus will bring heaven to earth. Come on, that's going to be a good day. And the Bible tells us that we should pray for Jesus to return. I know when you're single and you're young, you're praying that he waits a little longer. But as you get older, you start to pray for him to return even more. You're like, oh, come quickly, Lord, you know. We're waiting for him to come and usher in his kingdom and finally and fully bring justice. But we know that until that happens, we're waiting. Here's the thing. While we wait... That does not mean that we should just sit around and not do anything about evil in the world. We're not supposed to just sit on our hands and say, it's not my problem, it's God's problem. We're supposed to long for and work towards his kingdom come. Matthew 6 says, pray like this, may your kingdom come soon, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're supposed to pray this way, God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, in earth, there's only righteousness. In, earth, or in heaven, there's only righteousness. In heaven, there's only justice. In heaven, there's only goodness. We're supposed to pray for that to come to earth. Well, you know, you know, one of the ways that God wants to answer that prayer, it's through you. By the way, you treat people and love people and show kindness to people. We can help the poor and defend the oppressed and take care of the downcast, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, right? Micah 6, 8 says, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So a little bit of weight off your shoulders. You're not responsible to stop all injustice. You wouldn't be able to even if you tried. 
you are called to do what is right in your life with the choices before you and the way that you treat the people who you encounter. You're called to to love mercy and show people mercy. That means be quick to forgive and be compassionate and let people off the hook. And walk humbly with God. Part of walking humbly with God is knowing your role and saying, God, there's some problems that are too big for me, only you can fix. So I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna trust you to be God. In Romans 12, 18, it says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So I cannot stop all injustice or end poverty or prevent sin, but as far as it depends on me, I'm gonna do my part. I'm gonna live at peace. I'm gonna try to be a person of peace. I'm gonna be a peacemaker. And we can do that in the way that we treat people who are different than us, helping those who are in need of help. Think about foster kids and how we can help them. Think about uh, unborn children and what we can do to defend their lives or helpless people, standing up for people when they're suffering, right? And we pray in the meantime, God, send, send your son back. Finish the work once and for all. That's God's solution to the problems of this world. That is God's plan to end evil, injustice, and suffering. Critical theory is a worldview and an ideology that proposes a different plan. It basically says, well, we don't need to wait for God. We'll create heaven ourselves and we'll take God's place. We'll punish the wrongdoers. We'll empower the oppressed. And we will create earth as we see fit to promote a utopia of equity. Really, critical theory is a false religion. The original sin of critical theory is oppression and racism. The saviors of critical theory are social justice warriors. The holy texts that they have are sacred and held dear. And it promises a utopian heaven on earth. Instead of a spiritual awakening, it offers a worldly awokening. And so I want to describe it a little bit. If you're taking notes, this will help you to understand it as we go through it. Here's the first thing. Critical theory seeks to forcibly redistribute power from the oppressors to the oppressed. This is a little bit of an academic talk, but I'm trying to boil it down to its basics. Wants to redistribute power from the oppressors to the oppressed. Critical theory categorizes all people as either oppressors or oppressed. The Christian faith identifies us in terms of our vertical relationship with God. You're either an enemy of God or a child of God. You're either a sinner or you're a saint. That's how it works. Critical theory defines your identity in terms of your horizontal power dynamics between groups of people. So you're either privileged or you're marginalized. Maybe in the last year you've sensed a heightened level of awkwardness between people, people who might be from different places or look different than each other. There's just more awkwardness than ever before. That's because critical theory, which has permeated our society, it pits people against each other. It draws attention to everyone's differences and turns everyone into the enemy. There's some terms you need to be familiar with. Hegemony. Hegemony is a term. It's this, the social, cultural, ideological, or economic influence 
exerted by a dominant group. So a hegemony is a dominant group that influences the culture. So, you know, like the media and Hollywood, they kind of influence our perception of beauty. Or Washington, D.C., they influence our world through laws. That's a legitimate concept, a hegemony. It's a powerful dominant group. Intersectionality is another term. It's the interconnected nature of social categories such as race, class, and gender, sexual orientation, and religion regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination and disadvantage. I know some of you are like, what are you even talking about right now? It's going to make more sense. So in light of intersectionality, critical theory identifies the hegemony of oppressors. Here's what they are. Who's what they look, what they look like, okay? The critical theory's hegemonic oppressors look like this. It's white, male, heterosexual, cisgender, which means if you're born a male and you act like a male, that's, that's what they call it. I just call that being normal. <laughs> Capitalist, able-bodied, native-born Christian. So if you're white, you're an oppressor. If you're non-white, you're oppressed. If you're male, you're an oppressor. If you're female, you're oppressed. If you're heterosexual, you're an oppressor. If you're LGBT, you're oppressed. And on and on and on. If you're transgender, you're oppressed. If you're socialist, you're oppressed. If you're disabled, you're oppressed. If you're an immigrant, you're oppressed. If you're a non-Christian, you're oppressed. So basically, you take someone like me, and I'm Darth Vader. <laughs> I am the epitome of all that is wrong with the world, according to critical theory. And the more categories that you fit into, this is where the word intersectionality comes from, the more categories of oppressor that you fit into, the more privileged you are and the less right you have to say anything about anything. So if I start talking about this and you're like, Pastor Ryan, you can't talk about racism, you're white. Or you can't talk about abortion, you're a man. That very idea comes out of critical theory. Conversely, a non-white, female, lesbian, transgender, immigrant, Buddhist would be completely oppressed and therefore have the moral authority of a demigod and critical theory says we must all listen to that person and empower them and that's how we fix the injustices of our world, by empowering oppressed people. Compare this mindset to Christianity, which says, you're not a victim. Your first identity <laughs> was as a villain who broke God's laws and deserved death. Your first problem is that you're oppressed by the curse of sin. But here's the good news, that through Jesus, anyone can be set free empowered by the Holy Spirit, adopted into God's family, and forgiven of sin. Like, so through Jesus, we can receive favor. God's good. Here's the second thing, if you're taking notes. Critical theory undermines the trustworthiness of Scripture by redefining truth. Jesus said the truth will set you free. But here we have an ideology that redefines truth. So Christianity incentivizes us to want to be victorious. Who doesn't want to be victorious? Right? If you, those of you who are raising kids, don't you want to be able to teach your kids like, hey, son, you're victorious in Jesus. That's a healthy mindset to have. It teaches us to love the truth. 
But critical theory incentivizes people to want to be victims. Because the more of a victim you are, the more power you have. And the more your opinion becomes a valid alternate truth. This is important. Critical theory claims that members of of oppressed groups have special access to truth because of their lived experience of oppression. Such insight, this special access to truth, is not available to members of oppressor groups who are blinded by their privilege. So that means that in critical theory, lived experience is greater than facts, logic, or science. And I'm summarizing a lot of this. There's a lot of of information behind this. I'm trying to kind of boil it down and make it simple. But that means that when you have a debate with someone and they believe in critical theory or they've been kind of immersed in that way of thinking, if you try to use facts or logic or research or the scientific method, that's actually considered racist. Because those methods of knowing come out of Western colonial society and are used... This is what they say, to preserve privilege and the oppressor's power. That's a problem. Christianity says that scripture, the Bible, is the final arbiter of truth. And it's accessible to anyone, regardless of their demographic or their ethnicity. Anyone can have truth through God's word. Jesus clearly affirms absolute truth. It's not based on your lived experience. Jesus just said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But in critical theory, the highest form of enlightenment, it doesn't come from God's word, but from listening to people's lived experiences. That's why you hear so much today about the need to listen. Like, you just need to listen. You just need to listen more. Christianity tells us to listen too. It's like, listen to God, listen to your spiritual leaders, listen to a sermon, listen to the Bible. But in critical theory, it's just, well, you need to listen to people. Now, here's the thing. We all know this, like listening can be a very valuable tool, right? I know a lot of marriages that would be better if if people listen to each other more. It's a way that you can show love and gain sympathy for someone else. You just got to make sure you listen to the right people. People that have a, a healthy mindset and understand God's word. So, for example, you know, recently I got to spend time talking with some some older, godly black men and women in our church who believe in Jesus, they love God's word, they have strong faith, and they shared with me stories of experiencing terrible racism in their youth. And that really helps me to sympathize with my brothers and sisters in Christ and to gain new levels of compassion for someone who has suffered racism or injustice of any type. And I want to caution everyone, Just because, hear me church, just because someone talks about racism or oppression or seeks justice, it does not mean that they've automatically embraced critical theory. The word of God teaches us to seek justice, right? Okay, so understand that. We don't want to get that confused. But then the problem is I've listened as well to people who have been deceived by critical theory, critical race theory, or other unbiblical ideologies under this umbrella. And the problem with critical theory is is if someone's been misled or deceived, 
you can't even correct them. You cannot correct them or coach them or help them because their lived experience is just as valid as any other truth. And if I say, no, that's wrong, that's not right, then they would say, critical theory says, no, I'm just protecting my white privilege as an oppressor and I just need to listen better. So, so I want you to understand, critical theory is like a train with multiple boxcars. Critical theory and intersectionality are like the engine. And then there's critical race theory, and that's a big one. And that's what, that's what gets a lot of Christians sucked in. And it makes sense why, because we hate racism. It's just so clearly, it's such a clear evil and defies God's creation order, his word, and his heart. So Christians, we just inherently hate racism. So it sucks some people in by the heartstrings, but they don't realize they're getting on a train that heads to destruction. And there's a whole lot of other junk on this train. Another part of critical theory is the LGBT agenda and promoting it as being a very healthy, normal lifestyle. Another element of critical theory is tearing down the traditional construct of marriage between one man and one woman. Another con aspect of it is tearing down traditional gender roles. Another aspect is tearing down capitalism. Another aspect of it is tearing down the Christian church. And so when you get on this train, even if you get on it for one reason, you end up getting sucked into all these other different deceptive ideologies. And it's just so damaging. Christians, Christians who embrace critical theory as a solution to racism or sexism eventually end up questioning their biblical understanding of a lot of things, of gender roles, gender identity, sexual orientation, marriage, parental authority, or even the validity of the Christian faith. So it's very dangerous. In John 17, Jesus says, they, that's you, that's us, they do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Jesus says that scripture gives all of us the privilege of knowing what is actually right and what is actually wrong. And I'm not sorry about any privilege that comes from Jesus. Aren't you grateful that we get to know the truth? Sorry, I had, I had a cold this week, so my voice is like, my voice is weak. All right, here's the third thing. Critical theory condemns, cancels, and tears down whereas Jesus redeems, resurrects, and builds up. So do you notice how people are just so sensitive these days? <laughs> if you're younger, you might not know that that's not normal, but there used to be a day people had pretty thick skin, and you could say a lot of stuff, and people didn't really look sideways at it. Maybe we should have been more conscientious of each other. But today, people are so sensitive, and they're looking to be offended. They're looking to be offended. And that makes sense because critical theory encourages people to find offense. There's a phrase, a, a term, problematizing. To problematize is to make into or regard as a problem requiring a solution. In layman's terms, it's to make a big deal out of nothing. To make a big deal out of everything. 
everything. They're going to try to make it into a big deal. So if you ask a white guy if he likes country music, you're racist. (laughs) If you ask a girl if she likes to cook, you're sexist. If you try to help an old lady across the street, you're ageist. If I raise my voice when I'm talking and make hand gestures, then those are microaggressions and I'm practicing toxic masculinity. A lot of you know what I'm talking about. You've been in the sensitivity training, right? You've been... See, critical theory is really a false religion and it's got its own legalistic Pharisees who are looking like, what did you mean by that? What do you mean? Just like in Jesus' days, and they're looking to punish everyone for everything. Everyone is offended. Everyone's looking for a reason to be outraged. And the idea is like, you know, if you offend us, we're going to cancel you. We're going to end your career. You're never going to work in this town again. You're going to be an outcast forever. Think about how that compares to the way that God treats people. In the Garden of Eden, you know, Eve, the first woman, she kind of messed things up. You know, she took this fruit that she wasn't supposed to eat. She ate it. She gave it to her husband. What did God do? God didn't cancel her. He didn't cancel womankind. Instead, he turns right around and he redeems her by making the promise to redeem humanity through the offspring of woman. That's pretty cool. By grace through faith in Jesus. Peter denied knowing Jesus three times, but Jesus restored him to his calling. To summarize the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. So critical theory offers eternal condemnation, whereas Jesus offers mercy, reconciliation, and eternal life. Rather than looking for any possible reason to be offended, Jesus says, Christianity says, that you should forgive the people who offend you. Let it go. Proverbs 19.11 says, sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. And Jesus says this in Matthew. Jesus says, but I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. (laughs) That's how I read it, right? You can read it whatever cheek you want. But see, like critical theory encourages you to get offended so that you can feel like a bigger victim and be angry at everyone. Jesus tells you, overlook offense. Humbly remember how big of a villain you were before God forgave you and redeemed you. It's a whole different way of looking at the world. And then fourth, here's this. Critical theory assigns guilt unjustly and demands unjust solutions. So here's what this ideology does. It assigns guilt to whole groups of people, regardless of individual actions. So, for example, according to critical theory, all white people are racist. There's a book that's going around called White Fragility, and it's really meant to teach you, you know, like, you're racist and you just need to accept it. And I know in those last year, a lot of white people were like, Am I racist? I didn't, I didn't think I was racist. They're like, no, you're, you're racist. I don't, I, don't, I don't think I'm racist. No, the fact that you're denying it proves you're racist. In fact, there was a local church in the valley last year that told their whole church, all you white people need to repent of racism. And thousands of people left this church, as they should. 
Critical theory says all men are sexist. All men, and all men are sexist, no exceptions. All heterosexuals are homophobic. All Western societies, America, Canada, Europe, all are colonial. Like, who are you to think your way is better than third world countries? Coming in here trying to impose things on us like modern medicine and sanitation. You colonials. All Christians are bigoted. Even the concept of sending missionaries to save lost people is considered bigoted by critical theory. Who are you to think your faith is better than other beliefs? Well, God's the one who said that our faith is the only way that leads to eternal life. We're trying to help people out here. So what does the Bible say about lumping people together like this in big groups and assigning guilt to the whole group? It says it's wrong. Ezekiel 18 says this. What, you ask? Doesn't the child pay for the parent's sins? No. For if the child does what is right, if the child does what is just and right and keeps my decrees, that child will surely live. The person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parent's sins. And the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior. And wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. But if wicked people turn away from all their sins and begin to obey my decrees and do what is just and right, they will surely live and not die. The child is not guilty for the sins of the parent. You're not guilty for what people who look like you do. God holds you accountable for what you do. God is concerned with what is in your heart, your motives, and your actions. So I just want to say this. You're not guilty of racism just because you're white. You're not guilty of sexism just because you're a man. You're not bigoted just because you're a Christian. You're not greedy just because you want to be successful. You can take the example of Jesus. Theologically, think about this. Jesus was a Jewish man. He lived in a culture that was patriarchal. Women didn't have a lot of rights. He was a Jewish man. A lot of the times in the Old Testament history, the Jews did things that were sinful. So according to critical theory, Jesus would be guilty of the sins of his community. But what does the Bible say? 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He had no sin. He was not guilty of the crimes of his community. What does that mean? It means all Jews are not guilty for crucifying Jesus. All Americans are not guilty for slavery. And if any of us are guilty for sin, and sometimes we do sin, if we are guilty, then Ezekiel said that God gives us the opportunity to repent and be forgiven. That's how God works. Christianity says this in 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So with God, when you confess your sin, he forgives you. He forgets about your sin and he wipes your record clean. You get a fresh start. He doesn't hold your past against you. But critical theory tells us to confess not our sin, but it says we should confess our privilege. 
This is why in the last year you saw everybody like on social media, people you would talk to be like, yeah, now I realize I'm, I'm privileged. I realize all my privileges. I'm super privileged. Because in critical theory, that's how you get saved. Not by confessing your Savior, Jesus. You confess your privilege. It's, it's a false religion. Now, on one hand, objectively, all Americans, we, we are privileged, if you want to use the word. Like, we get clean drinking water whenever we want, access to health care, education, electricity. Most of the world doesn't get any of that. But when critical theory, when our culture around us uses the word privilege, really what they're usually doing is they're trying to shame whole groups of people and guilt trip them for crimes they didn't commit. In critical theory, even if you confess your privilege, even if you do confess, you're still never forgiven. You can never make amends or be reconciled. This is what it teaches. If you're white, you'll always be racist. You cannot escape it. If you're straight, you'll always be homophobic. If you're an American, you'll always be a colonialist. If you're a capitalist, you'll always be greedy. If you're a Christian, you will always be an oppressor and a bigot. And in critical theory, having your eyes opened to this oppression is what makes you woke. That's the term. To be woke. I once was blind, but now I see. And Ephesians 5 talks about this. For the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So it's good to be spiritually awakened. That's very different, being awake spiritually versus being woke according to the world. I heard Pastor Mark Driscoll say this, that this last year a lot of churches in America were shut down. Christianity was kind of throttled back. A lot of people stopped going to church. They stopped worshiping. They stopped serving. They stopped giving. They stopped praying. They stopped reading their Bibles. And it's like they fell asleep spiritually. Meanwhile, the world got woke. We cannot afford to have a sleeping church. The woke world needs an awake church. So you've got to identify the right problem and the right solution. Christianity and critical theory tell two different stories. Christianity tells one story that runs from creation to redemption. It says that we are creatures made in God's image who have sinned against him, and we need to be saved by the atoning work of Jesus. We're called to love God and love people. Critical theory tells another story that runs from oppression to liberation. It says we're either all members of a dominant group or a marginalized group. As such... We either need to surrender power and seek to liberate others, or we need to acquire power and liberate ourselves by dismantling all structures and institutions that subjugate or oppress. So hear this. In critical theory, the greatest sin is oppression, and the greatest virtue is the pursuit of liberation. It's not good enough, they say, to be not racist, you need to be anti-racist. And so when you hear that phrase, anti-racist, it's like, well, that sounds good. I am anti-racism. <laughs> like, how do I do that? I want to I do that. Well, the, the word anti-racist, there's a book called Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. 
It describes something that's not good. Critical theory seeks to tear down all oppressive institutions to redistribute power to the oppressed. I wouldn't personally be surprised if this is the exact type of talk and ideology that Lucifer used in heaven to lead one-third of the angels to divide and rebel against God. Oh yeah, those other angels, they don't appreciate you. They don't value you. God has been oppressing you with his omnipotence. We need to tear this thing down, put me in charge, let's put ourselves in charge, and I'll give you a better heaven like God never could. Sounds familiar. And the thing is, like anyone who's ever tried to build something knows how hard it is. It's hard to build something good. Christianity is all about building. Jesus is building his church. We're trying to build healthy marriage, marriages. We're trying to build businesses that are fruitful. We're trying to build children up who are not little terrorists. We're trying to build up communities that are loving and, and safe. Critical theory, though, is all about tearing stuff down. Tearing down anyone knows, everyone knows how easy it is to break something that's already been built. It's a lot easier to break and tear down than to build something good. So in economics, critical theory attacks wealth and success. In gender studies, it attacks men and masculinity. In marriage studies, critical theory attacks the traditional male-female heterosexual marriage that God designed in the Bible. Why? Why, you ask? Because they say, they know this, that when kids have a mother and a father, they are more likely to be raised with traditional Christian values. And they don't want that because, remember, Christianity is oppressive. In sexuality, critical theory attacks sex, gender, and marriage. In religious studies, critical theory attacks, surprise, Christianity. The thing is, you know, criticizing the imperfect work of another sinner is a lot easier than actually doing the hard work to build something better. It's like the out of shape guy in the stands at a football game yelling at the world-class athletes on the field about how they drop the ball. You need to draw, hold on to the ball. Don't drop the ball. Like the guy can't even hold on to his chili dog. He's yelling. But we live in a world where those who are woke say we must tear down all people in positions of authority and replace them with oppressed people groups. This concept is unbiblical. Romans 13.1 says, everyone must submit to governing authorities. I'll be honest, this is nobody's favorite Bible verse. No, I've never met a single person who's like, yeah, Romans 13.1 is my favorite Bible verse. I got a t-shirt, got a coffee mug. I'm just like, Romans 13.1 is my life verse. No, because we're naturally rebellious. I'll just speak for myself. I'm naturally rebellious. It says all authority comes from God and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. It is kind of ironic. This is, this is one of the, <laughs> the criticisms of critical theory. Is that if you do replace the oppressors with the oppressed and put them into power, what stops them from also becoming oppressors? Nobody knows. <laughs> There's no answer to that question. Like We haven't got that far. 
First Thessalonians 5 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is how God thinks about how we should treat each other. Not cancel each other, not criticize each other, but encourage one another. Build one another up, not tear each other down, but build one another up. In Christianity, we don't cancel, we correct. We coach. There's a better way, let me show you, let me help you do even better. We don't defund, we refine, we reform. If there's a problem with an institution or organization, we should reform it, we should fix it and make it better. We don't tear down, we build up. That's how God works. Christianity comes with good news. It says, hey, you are a villain who broke God's laws, but the good news is that Jesus turns villains into victors. Remember, in critical theory, everyone celebrates victimhood. In Christianity, we celebrate being victorious, a better identity. We're on the winning team and we're proud of it. We're blessed, the Bible says, we're highly favored, we're chosen, we're free from guilt, and nobody can condemn us. We're not victims, we're victorious. I mean, those of you who have kids, isn't that the way you wanna raise your kids? Teaching them like, you are victorious in Jesus. You can overcome. And our victory has nothing to do with any color other than crimson. The blood that flowed from the cross of Jesus Christ that sets us free and gives us life. It says this in Romans 8. It says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is our message for the world. We live in a world where there is a saturation of evil. There is a divide by sin. It's no wonder that critical theories, promise of, of justice and inclusion are attractive to some people. But as a church, we know the truth. We gotta show people a better way. We've gotta demonstrate true love by reaching across lines, the lines of class, race, gender, and show the world what it looks like to love your neighbor the way that Jesus has loved us. When we show the world the true love of Jesus, we show them there's a better alternative to critical theory. God's plan is so much better, and the love of God that builds us up is so much better than the criticism and accusation of the enemy that tears us down. The devil condemns and tears down. Jesus resurrects us to life and builds us up. That's what he does. Jesus is making all things new, and so there is hope. There is hope in anyone who suffers injustice or evil in this world, that breaks God's heart. And that should break our heart as God's people. We hold on to the hope. We know that one day this is gonna be over. God is gonna right the wrongs and establish his kingdom on earth. Until then, we're gonna do our part to bring justice, to do what's right, to love mercy, 
to walk humbly with God. We're going to do our part. But ultimately, we know I am not the solution to the problem. God is the solution. Jesus is the one who fixes this. We put our trust in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth. God, I pray for your people that our eyes will be open to see the truth. That you would guide us, not by the ideology of the world, but by the truth of your word. We pray for transformed minds, not conformed minds. Lord, lead us and guide us and show us how to love people the way that you love us. Show us how to stand up for what is right. Show us, Lord, how to have and live in unity in our church, in our homes. We want to be unified. God, we thank you so much for your mercy towards us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.